I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. I know this is a strange way to start a podcast, but if you've ever lost someone in your life, you know that grief and sadness isn't just something that happens to you once and then it goes away. It can follow you for years. It can show up in really surprising ways. You know, I'm I'm home for Christmas right now. We're just kind of at the end of the holiday period. And, you know, I still feel it in my life all the time in sort of surprising ways. Because the thing about grief is that, sure, it comes out as sadness, but also laughter and anger and anxiety. And also when you go through, and, you, and if you've experienced this, you know it. When you go through something like that, you know who your true friends really are. With all that said, there's a new film out on Netflix today, and it's called... Good grief. And it's about the complex ways that we all grieve. It's about a guy named Mark, and he goes through the sudden loss of his husband, and he ends up finding out some stuff about his husband, and that's sort of a a long story. And then he ends up going to Paris with a couple of his friends to get some closure. Good grief is written by, directed by, and stars the Canadian actor, writer, and filmmaker Dan Levy, who has been the biggest story in Canadian TV and film over the past decade. He's like the the Drake of Canadian TV and film. His show, Shit's Creek, which again he starred in and co-created it and co-wrote and all that stuff, went from a little CBC comedy show, like I think it aired on Tuesday nights, and I have a vague recollection of being told about it, to sweeping the Emmys and being talked about as one of the best modern comedies ever. When it won at the Emmys in 2020, it swept the comedy category, winning all seven awards, the first TV show to do that. So after that happens, everyone's asking, what's next for Dan? And good grief is the answer. The film is out today on Netflix. So why, after winning all those TV awards, did Dan not think he could write a movie? How do you get over self-doubt and self-criticism when those voices are really loud in your brain? Um, That's good. It's good to know, especially with the new year coming on. And how did a walk in the snow lead to this whole film? Here's my conversation with Dan Levy. Dan, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm so honored to be here. I'm such a fan of this. I'm such a fan of this show. So it feels very, it feels great to be here. Um, congratulations on the film. It's 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 really beautiful. Thank you very much. I wonder if you would tell me a little bit about, uh, if you don't mind, about a little bit about what inspired it. My my understanding is, sort of the or, original sort of brainchild for for a film that explores grief came from the passing of your grandmother. Is that right? Yeah, and then and then my dog, funnily enough, and. Um, you know, I think grief, is, I, I've been, I haven't experienced a lot of it in, in my life. And so the feelings were kind of new and confusing and it was coinciding with the tail end of, of the pandemic. And I feel like we were all experiencing a kind of collective grief that we've never known before and trying to detangle it and trying to understand what it meant in relation to like a personal loss 
had me very confused and had me feeling like in some way I was betraying uh, my grandmother by not feeling as much as I physically thought I should. And it was a hard thing. And it was in that process that I, I thought, well, maybe there's a story to be told here in terms of um, trying to understand what grief means and trying to find meaning and trying to find an answer. Um, and I knew that I wanted to to make a story about friendship. Um, and then it was just about figuring out, well, how does grief and friendship coincide and what does it all mean? And in the case of the film, it just ended up being, you know, an, an exploration of friendship in the wake of a great loss. We have been here for you whenever you've needed us for almost a year now. We built you the nest and we sat on you for a year. It's time to hatch. My little puffling. We love you. And this is us loving you. I think grief can be an incredibly confusing thing. Um, and through the process of writing the movie, I, I feel like I was able to tr to to try to find some kind of answer. I don't even know if there is one, but I felt I found closure, I guess. Let me let me make sure I understand I, I understand you correctly, because you said a lot there that I I, I think is really beautiful and, and I wanted I want to touch on. So mm -hmm. you're so we're going through that pandemic as a uh, in the sense of like just unimaginable kind of collective grief happening mm -hmm. all the time, and and in that time your your grandmother passes away. Uh, do, do you mind if I ask what her name was? Her name was Pat Patricia. Patricia Pat Pat, Pat. To, to those who loved her. This is your paternal or your, your maternal grandmother. This is my maternal grandmother. Yeah. So so she she passes on and you start feeling um, actual. Grief, and I, I've experienced that sort of grief in my life, where we're sort of sold one thing in in TV and movies about the way grief mm -hmm. feels. It's unimaginable, and we dress all in black, and we mm -hmm. and we keen, and we lie in the basement, and we cry, and we're not allowed to feel any other emotions. And because you weren't feeling that, because that wasn't your experience fully, you began to wonder: mm -hmm. Am I feeling? Am I feeling grief correctly? Correct. Am I honoring her appropriately? Um, she was one of the most meaningful people in my life. So um, the confusion about why my physical body wasn't feeling what my mind wanted it to was a strange conversation. And funnily enough, I was in Toronto at the time. And I remember, and this might be, a, I, I, I'm trying to kind of articulate it in a way that makes sense. But I remember walking down the street, this was months after it was December, and it was snowing. And the snow was falling like very, it was big flakes and it was falling really slowly. And there was such a beauty to the what was happening around me. And I remember thinking, oh, like the world is not thinking about what I'm thinking. The world is moving on and the world will move on regardless of my feelings in it. And it kind of exploded this, it, 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 it reminded me of like how small I was and yet also exacerbated, like it, it blew open all of these feelings. And I remember walking my dog when he was still alive in the snow and having a cry by myself, like walking down the street months after my grandmother had passed. And I had obviously physically cried when when she had passed but the 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 ache the 
cinematic kind of loss wasn't wasn't coming to me at the time. And it, it took this very strange moment yeah. in the snow yeah. to crack open a, a, a kind of openness or like sensitivity to to life, I guess, that I realized I, I wasn't feeling. I think we were so hardened by the pandemic. We yeah. were so existing in this kind of like we had fortified ourselves physically. There were masks on us. We were in hazmat suits. We were spraying down, you know, I mean, and and I, I was able to to feel again in this moment. Yeah. And it was then that I realized I think there's a story to be told. I think I think I have to I think I think my path through this is to is to write it down. I wrote down that moment in a notes app as soon as I got home from that walk and it it's just this run long, run run on sentence that makes no sense about snow and my <laughs> emotionality and my dog and life and death. Um and I remember like when I started to write the screenplay, like looking at that notes app and thinking, I don't know really what any of this means, and yet I feel it. <laughs> oh, okay. You couldn't, you couldn't, you weren't entirely sure what you were getting. You weren't entirely no. sure what you had written, but you knew what you were getting at. Yeah, I was in a very emotional state of just like <laughs> stream of consciousness. And yet, it, it, while it didn't make logistical sense, it certainly conjured a, a feeling that I wanted to capture on, on screen in a, in a story. Your your character Mark's um, husband uh, dies, mm-hmm. and uh, pretty pretty early on in in the film. So I think we that we can call that not a spoiler. Of course, yeah. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think I I thought because I didn't know anything about the film before I watched it. I tried to go in blind, and great. I thought that the movie was going to be about your character finding i thought we would be introduced to a new love interest and the rest of the movie would be about how to find love again after unimaginable loss mm-hmm. in the beginning parts of our conversation you said you wanted to write a, a film ab- about friendship i don't know if i've ever seen a film about friendship like this why mm-hmm. why were you thinking about friendship in writing a story about grief because as a single man in the world, my friends outside of my family are my support system. Right. And they were there for me when I ha- was had finished that stream of consciousness snow episode. They are there for me in in all, all through my life. They've been there for they've been there for me when I came out of the closet. They they play such a formative role in in who I am as a person in how I've gained confidence as a person, in how I feel supported as a person. And I wanted, and, and I think I'm 40 now, but going through my 30s, that entire decade, I think, was the most revolutionary, like, decade of my life when it came to friendships. And how sometimes, like, the bigger our lives get, the bigger our friendships get, the more complicated they get, the messier they get, the more you have to speak truth with your friends, the more, the harder the conversations get because the stakes are higher. And coming out of my 30s, I was looking back and thinking, I need to capture this. I need to capture these moments of of mess, of joy, of support, of love. Um, because as someone who doesn't have a partner, I don't get to see that love story at all. 
I've played a friend on the sidelines in movies before. I know that the friends historically operate as, yes, a support system, but as a support system in the propulsion of a love story. Yeah, kind of like, a kind of a B, they're kind of there to give expository dialogue about the love story. You guys seem yeah, to really like, like each other, you know, that kind of exactly, thing. Exactly, yeah, and yeah, like yeah. a fun little, and a fun little joke here and there, and, <laughs> yeah, and they can sure, be done sure. really well. I mean, yeah. you know, I look at Notting Hill, and I think that's a, that movie did friendship really well yeah. in terms of a support cast. But I hadn't seen in a very long time, and I'm, I fail to, to, to find a movie right now on the spot that I can think of that centers friendship, but it felt really important. It felt important to tell a love story about friendship, one that inverts our idea of how things should be, which is let the romance live on the outside and let the friendship take center stage for once. And... I owed it to my friends. I owed it to the, every friend in my life that has helped me get here because it's it's a precarious road. And particularly now more than ever, I think with, with a kind of success that I didn't ever see coming, my life has taken all of these different t- twists and turns and it's my friends that are the constant. I don't have a lot of like famous friends. Most of my friends are are the same as as before, you know, all of this happened. And it's important because they're the people that remind you of who you are. And they're the people who force you to kind of, you know, put your ego aside and 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 you know, remember who you were before things got like a little fancier. Gra- ground you, they they say, to ground you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um this 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 film and this role is I'm going to be careful about this. It's sort of an inversion of what most of us know you for. There's um, the easy way to think about that is that Schitt's Creek is a comedy and this is a, a drama. I think it's a, more, a little mm-hmm. more complicated than that. And the way I've been thinking about it is that Schitt's Creek is a comedy with heart and drama in it. This mm-hmm. is a, a, a more dramatic story still with elements of, of comedy in it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it kind of, I think it acts as almost a bookend to Schitt's Creek in a way. It's like the polar opposite in every way. It's, it is exactly as you said. It is a drama that has elements of comedy as opposed to a comedy that has elements of, of sentimentality. Um, and yet, we'd always seen Schitt's Creek as a drama. I mean, as a writer's room, it was always, it was one of the kind of the major f- ideas that we took into every season, which is to remind ourselves that inherently, this is a drama. It's the circumstance. It's the characters and the circumstance coming together that makes the comedy. I need that bed. Why? Because I need it. Why? Because if someone were to break in here in the middle of the night wanting to murder us, they would attack this bed first. So I need this bed. So you're saying that you want me to get murdered first? In front of you? And then what would you do? Would you just run away and leave me to bleed out on the floor? Uh, sort of. That was the plan. Yeah. But at the at the root of of the story, it's it's inher- it's inherently dramatic. They've lost everything; they have to start again. Mm. The fact that they're deeply incapable people is the humor. What's that? Eye cream. From where? From Paris. How did you pay for it? Uh, one of my credit cards is still working. How are you going to pay for it? I don't think you understand. I already have it. But so, for me, in my mind, to to go from that to this project is not as great a a leap as I think a lot of people might think because I always approached Schitt's Creek through the lens of a drama. And then how do we, how do we contort it and twist it and, and play with it to bring the comedy out? This was sort of, sort of the opposite. Any nerves about 
changing a little bit though? Like, is there any nerves about trying something new, whether it be a film or a film with a different tone? I think there's, um, there was nerves about earning people's trust and there was nerves about asking, you know, you ask, when you make a movie, you ask, you're asking a lot of people, you're asking a lot, a lot of people's time and energy. You're asking a lot of your actors. And I think for me doing something completely different and, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a very self-critical person, so I often have to overcompensate. I have to, I have to kind of repress my own self-doubt in order to feel like I can do something. And in this particular case, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of overriding my natural impulses to say, like, you're out of your league. You don't know what you're doing. Um, How do you do that? I, because I think deep down, I know that I'm capable of it. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. I think so many of us n- know that we are capable of things that our brain kind of stops us from feeling like we can actually do. Yeah. And it it is, you, you get an opportunity to make a movie. I'm not going to let the ego side of things ruin that experience for me. At least I, I'm trying desperately not, not to. And I was lucky enough, I think, through the process of making the movie, you know, you you get a phone call that Ruth Nega wants to meet. And I think, okay, I'm going to repress the the question of why. Yeah. And I'm going to instead try to see this as a compliment. You know, this is an Academy Award-nominated, unbelievable actress who has read a script that I have written and thinks it's deserving of her time. I want to have fun tonight. I want someone to look at me like I'm fresh out the box. Is that too much to ask? No. That took a a huge shift in my own brain to to try to see people's enthusiasm as a compliment and not as like why why are they why? because that's the that's the tendency that my I, you know that my brain kind of goes so it, it was a wonderful thing and I think you just I I rode I rode it I rode that wave of just like well we're gonna do this and we got a beautiful cast and I now owe it to the cast to be as good as I possibly can and to show up prepared and to know what I'm doing and to pre-plan and, 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 and make it as good as it can possibly be. It was a, it's a wild process of making this movie. And I, I just, somehow we came out the other end um, and I feel proud of it, even though I think it was probably the most cruel I've ever been to myself, that process. I'm so sorry to I'm so sorry to hear you struggle with that. I struggle with that too, and sometimes I feel like I'm the only person who does. I call it Dave. I always say I I, I read a book the other day that told me to a little while ago that told me to name myself critic. So sometimes, oh. like if I'm sitting here and I'm talking to you and I go, "Oh, that yeah. was a stupid question," or like, "What are you doing here?" or like, "Oh, he's gonna he's gonna say what the hell do you mean by that?" and I'm not gonna have an answer, you know. I go, "Oh, that's, that's Dave. That's Dave telling me to do that." But you know don't I mean? you find it fascinating, like? The, the honesty of, of owning how we feel is t- discussed so rarely because I look at someone like you and I listen to you in your interviews and I think, well, this guy is, I don't think I'll ever be as cool as this guy. Oh, like, yeah. He know, you know what I mean? No, yeah, but I mean, yeah, yeah. That's, that is who you are to people. Yeah, yeah, I know. You are someone that is confident and calm yeah. and you don't have to perform. You know what I mean? Yeah. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to like, perform to be a version of myself that people might like. But I think you look at all these people, everyone around us, and we're all struggling with something. It's just 
we don't end up have we don't have the freedom of the, of having those conversations to comfort each other in those moments and feel like less awkward and alone. It's funny this this whole process was I think is because it's the most vulnerable like thing I've ever done. I I feel I don't know why I was quite as hard on myself and um, I've come out the other side of it obviously and I'm, I can now appreciate I can, I can now appreciate it, but. It's a it's a process, man. Like it is tough. It's it's tough if you are not someone who is like unbelievably confident <laughs> because you're just looking for someone to validate your own fears about yourself. And the minute that someone even hints at it, you think, well that's exactly it. Oh yeah, or that's what it's they true. meant. They definitely meant that. That I know what they yeah. meant by that and it's that I'm bad exactly. at my job. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um did you I mean I I first was introduced to you um Dan through MTV and like the Hills live after show. And then I, I got to know you through Schitt's Creek and we, and we have some mutual mm-hmm. friends who are involved in that. I didn't know, I didn't know you had, a, um, and of course I know your, your, your dad's work and stuff like that, but I didn't know um, filmmaking was something that you were aspiring to. I mean, were you, were you a yeah, young a film student? Yeah. Were you, yeah. You were a young person wanting to be a filmmaker. I dropped out of film school my last year of film school to take the job at MTV. And I tried desperately to like have my time at MTV act as credit so that I could actually get a degree. Um, and they said no. So I am a college dropout, but yeah, I was in film school for three and a half years. And, um, you know, I think that's why this moment in particular feels very profound because television and the success in TV was, was not what I had originally intended to, (laughs) to do with my life. And to be perfectly honest, once I started making TV, I, I got really fearful about making films. The idea of writing a screenplay to me was freaking, like, terrifying. Um, why? I don't why? know why. Why? why? Because I don't know. Because you were writing thousands of hours of TV. I can't explain it to you. It's the, like, it was the totality of telling a story over, nine, in, in this case, like, 97 minutes. I didn't know how to do it. I, I had become so comfortable telling a story in 21 pages, not, not a hundred. So yeah, it was, I I guess for a while I had kind of cast away the idea that I would ever make a film. And then somehow the idea for the screenplay came and I, again, like overrode my own fears to say, okay, let's try this. At the very least, let's try it. I bought Save the Cat. I bought all the screenwriting books. I started to read I started to talk to my friends who had written screenplays before um, and ask them about it. And, you know, Save the Cat, funnily enough, was a huge tool for me. I needed, like, a rubric. I, I, I don't I know needed... what Save the Cat is. Oh, Save the Cat is, like, one of the great screenwriting books. And it walks you through in a very easy way. It walks you through the process of how to write a screenplay. It breaks down. It breaks down every element of what you need to do to come out of the experience with a screenplay. And so I was bookmarking, going through the pages, making notes, doing all of that, trying to figure out how, how it works. Because writing TV is structurally very different than a film. If I, if, I, if I understand this correctly, after you win like 133 Emmys... Uh-huh. You 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 win you win like a million. Yeah, I buy screenwriting for dummies, and, and you I go start reading. You, you buy the screenwriting Mad Libs and start filling it yeah. in. That's exactly it. Nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody. 
It's all a fluke. I mean, some people do, but a lot of my friends who are writers who have written like extraordinary works. I remember talking to to Phoebe Waller-Bridge about Fleabag and realizing that there are so many things that either happen on the day, so many moments that happened out of spontaneity, sp- spontaneity, and you think, well, this person, I mean, it. They, everyone is going through the same kind of experience and everyone has doubts about themselves and everyone has kind of fears about their own capabilities and fears that like, maybe this is it and I'll never find, you know, another idea. I think there's such a, there's, there's this amazing thing about acknowledging the fact that you don't know what you're doing, you know, and all you can do is try and all you can do is put pen to paper and say, okay, today I'm going to, I'm going to write a page or I'm going to read this chapter of this book and figure out, okay, well, chapter one, What's the log line? And that is an exercise. You think, okay, I think I have this idea for the movie, but what is the log line? What is, if I have to distill what I want to say in this movie to one sentence, what is it? All of these little fun exercises help. I love that idea that Dan talks about there, that we have this idea that people in the arts who have a tremendous amount of success have figured out something that we don't know. But as he puts it, nobody really knows what they're doing. That's the first half of my conversation with Dan Levy. His new film, Good Grief, is out today on Netflix. Coming up, you'll hear more of our conversation. Stick around. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to Season 2 of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. often find myself questioning myself. I find myself questioning life. I find myself debating a lot in my head. Writing is one of the rare ways where I can find clarity in the confusion. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the actor, writer, and director Dan Levy, who you might know best as the co-creator, writer, executive producer, and star of the show Schitt's Creek. He played David Rose. He was on the show with his dad, the legendary Canadian comic actor Eugene Levy. We're talking about Dan's first feature-length film that he wrote and directed. It's on uh, Netflix today. It's called Good Grief. Here's the thing. If you're a Canadian, you might actually have been familiar with Dan long before Schitt's Creek. He was on The Hills live after show on MTV Canada. I think that's when I first saw him. And he had a few, you know, a few roles in movies and TV shows after that. But, I mean, there was nothing like Schitt's Creek. I mean, it swept the comedy Emmys in 2020, you know, especially for a little small Canadian CBC show. So when you finally get the kind of success that Dan was looking for, you know, Emmys and all that, it feels to me like the hardest thing to do is keep it. I asked him if he thought about that at all, and here's what he had to say. I don't think about it at all. Good, Dan. And I don't say that like, I'm not lying. Because I know I had to think about it because, I, you know, I, I think that I think you could lie about something like that. I value the integrity of the work that I do. And if that stops and I have to go back to the bakery that I worked at in Toronto, like 
25 years ago, so be it. I, I value the integrity of the work more than anything else. And I think it scares people because I'm happy to walk away from a project if I feel like it won't honor that integrity. At the end of the day, it's all we have as, as people who create things. You go to bed at night, you put your head on your pillow, and you have to fall asleep knowing that you, you, you protected the integrity of, of your work and that you didn't give yourself away for the sake of someone else's agenda or success. What is success if you've bent over backwards and compromised yourself for the sake of getting there? It's not worth it, to be perfectly honest. And, you know, again, this is like, this is a conversation that I think a lot of people don't believe. But I genuinely, much like a lot of my cast on, on Schitt's Creek, we did not intend to be famous. Oh, no. We followed a path that brought us excitement and joy and exhilaration. I love performing. I love performing for an audience. That, I've loved that since I was a kid. I, I wrote and produced and starred in all my school plays at North Toronto and when I was a teenager. I have loved the idea of bringing an idea to life and, and, and giving it to people. Fame is a completely different conversation. I accept it because I have to, because it's a part of the job. I'm not, I'm not going to be one of those people that, that kind of wants to excuse myself from it. I understand that it comes with the territory, but it is not something I sought out. And when you don't seek out fame... It has to be about the work. And that's all that's all we have. So for me, it's not about sustaining a career. It's about preserving the integrity of the ideas and the work that I do. And if those hit, great. And if they don't, great. I just hope that I continue to get those opportunities to continue to tell stories. That's that is my next thing. If that's sustainability, then then sure. But it's not this overarching thing about like. I need to, you know, I remember when Schitt's Creek ended, I was hearing like momentum, momentum, momentum. And I was like, what, what are we talking about? And I, I, I think Schitt's Creek taught us all that you should be questing after projects that, that make you feel good, that make you feel like showing up to work is exciting. And if you're lucky that the work that you do means something to someone else. And I will always try to make things that mean something because if they mean something to me, I have to hope that they mean something to someone else. But, but Dan, they, they meant and they mean so much to, to so many people. I mean, to point in, in case, in July, you and your dad are appointed to the Order of Canada for co-creating Schitt's Creek. And for the, I'll mm. read the quote here, trailblazing advocacy of two SLGBTQI plus communities. What went through your mind uh, when you heard that? I still don't believe it's real. I don't. <laughs> I am. Um, I don't. Um, I don't think you can't. I mean, I, I, again, it's like the more you think about something, the more you believe that you, that that some kind of accolade you, you, that you are what in a place to to earn it. There's so many people I think yeah, in this yeah, country yeah. that deserve it. Yeah. You know, I just happen to be in the right place at the right time to get it. And so I, I don't know. I think in the same way with the Emmys, it's like, yes, they're on a shelf. And sometimes I will stop and think, wow, this is cool. Yeah, yeah. And I'm so proud of the team and I'm so proud of my family and I'm so proud of Catherine and Annie and our crew. Like, you know, that is the greatest. Annie Murphy winning her Emmy meant more to me 
than all of Miami's combined, to be honest. You know, finding someone who was an actor who showed so much promise in an audition room and then seven and a half years later watching that person win the highest award you can possibly receive on American television, that is what we're here for. I'm so proud to be a part of a show that um, stands for love and kindness and inclusivity and acceptance because those four things are things that we need more than ever right now. And this is just... Really, really wild. Thank you so, so much. So I deeply appreciate the Order of Canada, but for me, it's you can't hang your hat on something like that. You can you could take take it, accept it, love it, and then you you got to move on because you can't. Your ego will just lose its mind. That, that, that being said, the, the fact that it was foretelling LGBTQ plus stories was, was meaningful to me in particular. Of I mean, course. I, I don't know what kind of conversations you're having, but I felt like I feel like in the past year I've had more uh, creators come in from that community. I mean, I should point out that you're you're Canadian. You're living in the U.S. right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've never had more creators from LGBTQ plus uh, communities. Tell mm-hmm. me that in, in, in some cases – and I don't know if this is something you're seeing in the States, it's getting harder to tell some of these stories than it was before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's easier, and I, th- I think in some ways it's stayed the same. I don't know if it's harder. I just think it was impossible before. Yeah. So we've made some progress for sure. I think what, I, what I've tried to do with the success that I've had in, in America is to use that success to take friends of mine who have really strong voices and want to tell stories and say, okay, hello, executive, now look at this person. I believe in this person, so you should believe in this person. That's what this, I think that, and, and maybe it's the Canadian in me, but I, I just don't feel comfortable accepting success without using it to lift up other people because that's what happened to me. And you can't just sit there and say, okay, me, 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 what's next? You have to say what makes success fulfilling is the ability to use it to help other people, to use it to open doors for other people, to use it. You know, I don't want I don't want the responsibility of of only of being one of the few people to tell stories about about gay people, about queer people. It's important for me to take friends of mine, you know, queer friends of mine and say they're really funny. They have a great stand up set. They have a great idea for a pilot. Hello. Buy into them. They're worth it. Because I, I, I truly believe that that great parts, you know, for the most part, are written by people who have experienced them. I'm not getting a lot of, like, really nuanced gay auditions. You know what I mean? Like, I kind of have to write them for myself. And all the really great parts that I have read have come from writers who have that experience themselves. So it's about providing opportunity for 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 communities of people to get to tell their stories so that the actors have more to work with ultimately if that if any of that makes sense it all I mean, oh my god it, it all it all makes a, a, a perfect sense the idea i mean my favorite thing you said was that i i want to lift up people because that's what people did to me yeah yeah of course um you know i i i am i am absolutely aware of the opportunity that was provided with for me I know exactly what that conversation is. I'm confronted by it all the time. 
But what I won't, ex- the idea of nepotism. Oh, I wasn't talking about that. I was just talking about people looking out for people. I was just talking. You- oh, no, 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 no. And I, I, I agree. But I think from optically, from an outside perspective, I, you know, you, it's all you hear sometimes. Oh. Is, is, oh, this opportunity was given because of. We're talking about, you know, opportunities that are provided. I think from an outsider's perspective, a lot of that would be perceived as, as a nepotism conversation. And at the end of the day, like, and I know that there was this big conversation about that a little while back. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and that, like, it, it, it's a magazine, right? It was a, a was it New York I, magazine. I don't know what like it was. Yeah, I, say, I remember that. And I understand why people believe in it. And I understand that there are probably moments where it's true. But the industry has too much money on the line for people's kids to just be handed jobs. It's frankly like it doesn't work like that. And if you happen to kind of wander into your parents' profession, it's because it's in the home. And I, I, I think for me, I got to witness the funniest people in the world, like coming and going from my house. John Rutter, listen carefully. Dirty Lucy had quite a reputation with the fellas. Instead of kissing them goodnight, she would blank them all night. Uh, discuss world politics with them. Discuss world politics with them. John? <clears throat> Discuss world politics with us. Discuss world politics with them. We have a match. Congratulations. Why would you not want to be a part of that? Mm. But at the same time, I feel like what my dad and I did together was equal parts, was a contribution from equal sides. Mm. And I know in in my heart that that I did what I could, and I held up my end of the bargain. And and so for me, it was you know, it's it's about using that to continue to help other people. It, yeah, it's 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 peace of mind at the end of the day. It's knowing that you did the right thing. Also, at the end of the day, this watching this film reminded me that you are above. I mean, in, in, a great thinker about the industry and a great a great actor, but what a writer! What I mean, what a what a, a, a gifted uh, writer you are, and you do really see that in this in this film. And um, I I I read you say this thing, um, and I, it caught me off guard, and I didn't really know what you meant by it, so I wanted to ask you about it. Okay. I read you say that writing is one of the most meaningful outlets for questioning my feelings. I feel like I, I, I often find myself questioning myself. I find myself questioning life. I find myself debating a lot in my head. And writing is one of the rare ways where I can find clarity in the confusion. And so with this movie, like... Again, I was confused by the idea of grief. I was confused by my relationship to it. I was confused about whether I was doing it properly. And so in the process of writing this script, I was able to answer some of those questions and I was able to kind of focus my feelings, even though what I was writing wasn't directly related to my own grief. It was related to the bigger questions that I was grappling with. And I was able to kind of detangle and focus my thoughts so that by the time that I finished the movie, and there's a line that Celia Imry says at the very end of the movie, um, where, you know, we have kind of gotten through the storm and, and she, she says to avoid sadness is to also avoid love. As it turns out to avoid sadness also to avoid love. 
that was the answer to my question. That was the revelation that came somehow through my brain onto the page, onto the laptop, into an actor's gorgeous performance and out into the world. So I didn't, you know, it's it's a it's a sentiment that I I I didn't pre pre plan. I didn't have that line written down, thinking like, oh, this is a good one. It wasn't in the note. It wasn't in the note. <laughs> it wasn't in the snowfall. It was something that happened because at that point in the storytelling, something unlocked and a clarity mm. about how I was feeling came to me, and I wrote it down. Ah, beautiful. And so it is. This wonderful, it's a torturous, wonderful, exhilarating experience of telling stories, for me, telling stories, but in the in the process, trying to understand my own feelings. And it gets, it gets spread out amongst all these different characters. It gets spread out in little pieces and conversations and questions that are asked by different characters throughout the movie. And, and, and by the end of it, it worked, you know, so... It brought me a, a tremendous amount of closure and, and peace in in understanding what this was all for through through the through the work itself. Um, Dan, I loved I loved the film. Um, I loved thank you getting, getting the chance to talk to you today. Uh, next time, third time's a charm for having you in the studio. I think <laughs> I'm telling you, the next time I'm in Toronto, I'm going by whether you want me or not. Dan Levy is the writer, director, and star of the new film Good Grief. It's out today on Netflix. That is it for the show this week. Uh, Q is produced by the best team in radio and podcasting. Vanessa Greco, Liz Hossein, Vanessa Nigro, Cora Nijawin, Catherine Stockhausen. Our digital team is Amelia Ekbal, Shuli Grossman-Gray, March Mercanti, and Vivian Rashad. Our podcast producer is Caitlin Swan. Our director is Matt or Matthew Murphy, the same guy. Our engineers this week were Emily Kiravesio and Sam Hashemi. Our senior producer is Basil Seifa. Amy Keegan is our executive producer. My name is Tom Power, and I've been coming to you from my home in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador this week. Um, I've been doing the show from CBC Newfoundland just to get a couple more days in, stretch out the time home for the holidays. So thanks so much to everybody at CBC Newfoundland for letting me in and letting me borrow some mugs. A special thanks to Mark Strong for, as always, making everything happen here in St. John's so that I can, I can come home and see my family a little bit. My name's Tom Power. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.